Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another Wednesday session. We come together not just another session, we come together on this rare opportunity. we have this rare opportunity every week but it can be misleading I don't realize how rare an opportunity this is to get here tonight we all had to be we all had to be born at this time Buddha had to arise in the world. It's not every day or every period in history when you have a Buddha, someone who understood the Four Noble Truths and was able to teach them. may not realize it but that's a that's a big deal this isn't something this this simple teaching of mindfulness there's no reason to do it unless you understand the four noble truths there's no reason to do it i mean there there of course there's there's always the reason to do it but there's no there's no path for understanding it why we do it doesn't let us get what we want right? doesn't help us to get what we want it doesn't help us to fix our problems doesn't help us to control things all of the goals and the ambitions in our life doesn't help with any of those you need someone who can explain to us the truth of life the truth that all of our wants, all of our desires and our attachments and our delusions about control and me and mine they're all the cause of suffering to teach us that it's not our experiences, it's our reactions, our interpretation, our perspective on them that makes us suffer. It teaches us to see things just as they are, to not discard our perception as being hopelessly bound with emotion and subjectivity, but to teach us how to be objective, how to be equanimous, with a clear mind. And this rare opportunity. Buddhism didn't start at the beginning of time. Buddhism started with the Buddha only 2,500 years ago. And the way it's going now, it's not going to last so much longer. There'll come a time when no one knows how to practice the Buddha's teaching. Eventually there will come a time when no one's even heard of the Buddha or even knew what it was he taught. Not only that, we have to be born as a human. There are many beings that are fortunate enough to be here at this time, maybe even came in contact with the Buddha, but they weren't able to understand the teachings course five billion humans on the earth it's not that big it's not that many compared to all the animals and insects all the beings in hell and in the heavens who are ignorant and who are caught up in the pleasures of heaven and so on 
And we have to be physically, we have to be physically connected. To get here tonight, you had to be physically able to be here. In many ways, we make this ridiculously easy. You don't have to be physically here in the room with me to hear my answers to your questions, but you still need some physical connection. You need to have internet. A device to connect to the internet. You need to have had a physical connection that led you to know about this session. But the most important good fortune we've all had to be here is the presence of mind that wants to be here rather than somewhere else. We've taken time out of our busy lives, our lives that are so busy with work and with pleasure, with distraction and obsession, ambition, worry, fear. So many distractions. And we've decided We've decided to come here and discuss the Dhamma. So, welcome everyone. You have my appreciation that you're all here. Tonight is a question and answer session for those of you who are here for the first time the beginning here you can post what you want in chat as long as it's kind and thoughtful and mindful you can post questions as well but there will come a time where and we're coming up to it where I say stop and then we require uh, the chat to only be used for questions and everybody stop chatting and start focusing their attention on their own experience and on questions if you have them. And you can ask questions in chat. Anything that's not a question then will be deleted by Chris, who is here to help. And Chris will ask the questions, I will answer them. And you all can sit back, close your eyes, and just be with us. Here and now. And be with your own experience. Here and now. So I'm ready to begin, Chris. If you're ready, I'm ready. Let's begin. And no more chatting in the chat, please. Only questions. Regarding Q&A, bad things caused by meditation. How would one specifically cease the arising of a sense of a meditative self when in the meditative practice? A meditative self, I'm not quite clear on what that means, but I mean, just in, in general, first of all, that we don't specifically cease things. Things cease on their own accord. Uh, ceasing the arising of things comes from wisdom. Something will cease to arise. Well, they cease for, for various reasons. They cease to arise when the causes and conditions for them to arise are no longer produced, which is pretty obvious, right? But that's the case with things like sense a sense of self, sense of self won't arise when the causes and conditions for that sense of self are no longer produced. In regards to self, well, we have a sense of self based on our uh, perception of things, our perspective. Our perspective is, is based on the presumption that we're in charge, that there is a self that is in control, that is experiencing every single experience. 
But mindfulness teaches you otherwise. It teaches you that experiences are momentary. Whatever it is we are, it's little more than a concept, and the reality is, reality continues without any deference to our views or opinions. We see reality just as it is. There's no room or any reason for a sense of self, and that sense no longer arises. But you don't ever specifically do anything. You just generally and, and methodically, consistently cultivate mindfulness that allows you to see things as they are. When you see things as they are, the causes and conditions that are productive of, of, of bad things no longer arise because you've seen them as bad, as a cause for suffering and based on ignorance, based on delusion and so on. That comes naturally. There's no need or reason or benefit to trying to seek out what's good and bad or formulate ideas of what's good and bad. That'll always be artificial and unsustainable because it has no basis on your uh, in your experience. I often find myself noting wanting, wanting, is a certain amount of restraint necessary when applying the practice to daily life, for example, resisting the desire to eat too much? I wouldn't say necessary, maybe helpful is a better way of looking at it. It's good to have some kind of um, regimen or boundaries set for yourself that are reasonable. Because as you know, with things like dieting and so on, unreasonable demands are often easily broken, leading to discouragement, to, to being discouraged. So there are things like the eight precepts where you will need in the morning. But wouldn't worry too much about resisting the desire to eat too much. Ultimately, the practice comes down to being mindful. There are two sides, you know. There's the restraint and then there's the exertion. The things you incline yourself to do and the things you restrain yourself from doing. So the most important is restrain yourself from killing, stealing, cheating, lying, drugs, alcohol, that sort of thing. There's lots of other things like gambling and gorging and even entertainment and sex is, is good to take off the table if you can manage it. So it's up to you to find what precepts, what regimen or rules you're comfortable keeping. And you should have the idea that you can slowly increase those, uh, you know, restrict those boundaries further and further based on your practice based on how far you come in your practice, which is separate, of actually seeing that those things are bad for you and giving them up. So two sides of the practice. I have an exam coming up tomorrow, and I'm procrastinating. Should I note everything that I do to break free from my procrastination problem? You should note everything. I mean, you should note something all the time. I wouldn't be too obsessed with one thing or another, but it is good to note that you're procrastinating because that's a sign that there's probably something that you're overlooking, failing to note. It's often easy to note the things that are not so meaningful. The things like procrastination, which are meaningful, are often easy to overlook. It's, it's more comfortable to not try to face them, because it's habitual. So not taking note, having taken note of that, yeah, it's good to try and figure out what are the states of experience related to procrastination. 
procrastination because it can because can be because you enjoy something else can be because you don't like what it is that you have to do a very common read that's probably sums it up it's liking or disliking so noting those is a very good start and you can note thoughts that lead to those things and i mean it's all it's all in the practice already you don't have to make a special case for things like procrastinating procrastination but again you do have to take note of the the weak spots the things that you're probably not taking seriously enough that you notice are getting slipping through the cracks and you're just not confronting them the way that you should But I wouldn't, sorry, just one last thing. I wouldn't break, try to ever try to break free or look at something as a problem. Those, those perspectives are not useful and can be problematic, harmful. You can try and just note what you can, realizing that you've probably been missing some things. Just to see clearly, not to fix or control, but to straighten. Is it okay if the mantra seems dull in the mind as a result of fixating most of one's attention on the meditation object, or should an equal amount of attention be placed on clearly reciting the mantra? Any question that starts like this is, is probably... Uh, uh, an improper way of looking at it. So, if the mantra seems dull, whatever that, I mean, the mantra doesn't probably seem dull, but you have a, a dull feeling in your mind when you use the mantra, whatever, whatever that might be, then you would note that, note that dullness. You could say dull, but you should maybe say feeling or something like that. Second thing, it doesn't matter what something is a result of. Don't pay too much attention about that. Third, fixating your mind on something, fixate, uh, or trying to do things like you say, um, like measuring something somehow. I'm not quite sure what the last part of this means, but somehow measuring an equal amount doesn't mean anything either. I mean, it's overthinking the practice, really. Just do it, and as you do it, you'll start to learn how to do it. You'll see what you're doing wrong, you'll see how you're trying to control and fixate. If you find yourself fixating, just note it. If you find it dull, etc., just note that. You don't have to add anything to the practice. We have to subtract all of our inclinations and tendencies. But the misunderstanding is is that something should be okay. There's we're not concerned whether something is okay. It it just is what it is, and if it is like that, you should note it. How will I know wisdom if and when I find it? How will I know I'm going in the right direction? Wisdom just means clarity, it means seeing things as they are. You'll start to realize that you were seeing things poorly, not really seeing things at all. You'll start to see how your mind works in ways that you never really paid much attention to or enough attention to. That's wisdom. You'll see the nature of things. And that's how you know you're going the right direction, basically. It's one way of describing it. See things more clearly. Someone cut me off the other day, and I noted my anger and feelings. 
I could not get the image of the driver out of my head, so I began loving-kindness. Is this wrong use of loving-kindness? No, that's fine. I mean, it's not as, as deeply profound as trying to be mindful of the anger and the image. Right, you did note the anger and the feelings, that's good, but you should also note the image. Because that confronts the reality that it's not under your control. It helps you observe and, and, and appreciate this truth. The truth is that you can't get the image out of your head. Normally we look at that as being a problem. It's actually the nature of reality, that we are not in charge of our minds. You, 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 it's easy to dismiss that and and go on to try and fix things no? by by uh, focusing and observing that repeatedly you start to teach yourself to be be in tune with this reality that you're not in charge that we can't control so the best thing is just to say seeing, seeing, learn about your anger, learn about your feelings, try and understand how it all works and doesn't work and how it causes stress and suffering and so on. Loving kindness is like best used for when it's just overwhelming and you're just like, I can't even be mindful, this is too much. And it's just best used in general, you know, try and use friendliness, cultivate these states as a means of being friendly. Can one be mindful while indulging in entertainment, TV, games, or are these inherently unmindful? Any mind that is described as indulging is not going to be mindful. Is it possible to be mindful during those things? Sure. Because it's momentary. But you're going to have a much bigger problem with the addiction and enjoyment the, the the well the addiction basically the craving and clinging and needing wanting that you can't be mindful at the same time those are delusion based states you can be mindful of them after they happen it's probably a good way to deal with it note the liking note the wanting note the disliking when you don't get what you want etc Mindful is, is, is moments, so an activity isn't mindful or unmindful. As you be more mindful, you'll start to see the nature of your activities more clearly. You'll start to choose more positive, more beneficial activities. Incline towards those that actually make you happy and bring you peace. How do I stop doubting so much about the teaching due to my materialist past? It distracts me in my meditation and learning in the Dhamma. Well, that was an important lesson for you there because you can't stop it. In fact, someone asks this sort of question when they feel like they can't stop it. And that's a part, that's a lesson, that's a part of the Dhamma, a realization that you can't control your mind, that... In your materialist past, you probably used doubt as a weapon. You probably used skepticism, thinking you were in charge of it. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with healthy skepticism, of course. Even doubt can sometimes be... It's not a good thing. Let's, let's explain doubt in this case, or, or let's explain good thing. Um, sometimes bad things can be good things. They're not good things. But by good thing in Buddhism, we often simply mean that which has a positive impact on the mind or is a positive influence or is a positive quality of that mind. 
So negative qualities of mind can be indirectly helpful. They're not directly helpful to that state of mind. But doubt, for example, can help you realize that something's wrong. It's good if you're if you believe in some of the crazy religious theories that exist, doubt is a catalyst for you to stop believing in those things. Now the doubt isn't good for the mind, but it's a good thing you gave rise to some doubt, otherwise you might just have blind faith. It actually isn't quite like that, because a person who has blind faith in anything, even the Buddhist teaching, is always going to have doubt. It's not like you could ever avoid it. You can avoid it for some time, and you can work hard and ignore it. But the important lesson here is that the doubt is not under your control. Something that we build as a habit often. We doubt things that are true. You'll probably find that you'll see something and realize something about yourself. And then the next day you might even doubt that, that, that you actually experienced that. You did experience it. Something that you did experience. And then you'll doubt something you realized. And this is why realizations and insights are not really the goal or the path. When we say, oh, I had this profound realization and it just changed the way I think. You might find that a week later you're doubting it and thinking maybe you were wrong and so on. So the, 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 the path, what is the path, what is the goal is to see clearly how your mind works. When you have the doubt, you're not trying to stop it. You're trying to see it clearly like everything else. Part of seeing it clearly is realizing that, oh yeah, I see, I'm not really in charge of this doubt. It's not really me who is doubting. It can be a real ego trip sometimes for a, for a skeptic, you know, to doubt things. And you say, I, I don't believe that. These silly people who believe these things are... Or it might have not even be in reference to others. You can feel confident and proud of yourself. Good. I, I haven't lost my doubt. I haven't lost my skepticism. Doubt is a crippling state of mind. It's not good for you. Faith is a very powerful, positive mind state. Problem is, we put faith in bad things, and so those very positive qualities of mind end up be using, being used for very bad purposes. It's very powerful how religion makes people believe certain things. And when they believe them, they can do such horrible things in the name of that religion. And they're very powerful in doing it. Meaning, meaning they don't ever waver from their horrible goal, horrible practice, like killing and whatever. Because they have a very powerful mind. So if you can cultivate faith, if you can have faith in your experience, in yourself, well, not yourself, I guess, in, in what you see, you can come to be reassured by repetitive observation. Right? That's why we have faith in science, because they do experiments in airtight conditions, you know, like they have an airtight methodology that just makes you have very little doubt, and then they do it again, and they get the same result, and you say, hmm, that repetition, that makes me think that the first time wasn't just a fluke. So when you do that in practice, and you repeatedly observe You'll start to you'll start to develop faith and confidence, but it comes from right from things like doubt. Even seeing that the doubt is not under your control gives you faith, at least in that. Which I mean, is which is no small thing. Faith in the fact that faith in your observation that reality is not really under our control. That. We're only causing stress and suffering by trying to control and fix and direct our minds whatever way we want them.
When going about mundane tasks mindfully, do you note the general activity or go in-depth? For example, when washing the dishes, do I note washing, 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 or do I need to detail each action? There's not really a hard and fast rule here. Washing, washing is good. If you're doing it slow enough, it's better to note the individual actions, but really only if you're doing it slow enough. If it's something you have to do very fast, there's probably not much benefit from saying very quickly, like lifting, placing, moving, and so on. So you should try and do things slower a bit, and that will give you the opportunity to really be present and clear, but there's no harm in there's no it's not useless to say to yourself washing washing it's just as you say a little more vague and general still useful keeps you present and keeps you objective so washing is just washing Is it okay to meditate five minutes throughout the whole day, plus staying mindful, of course? I don't mind. I'm not going to stop you. Maybe you're asking, is it enough? Which is also hard to say, because then enough for what? Um, though you might say five minutes a day is probably not enough to make any meaningful change. And it would be easy to get discouraged, so it's probably not enough. That being said, even those five minutes, just think what it took for you to even think about doing that. How, 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 how courageous you had to be to decide that you were going to face your mind and your experience for five minutes. And that's a very wholesome positive inclination so good for you it, it it won't get you very far in a hurry but it will change your 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 life goals really right it changes your your outlook on life when you start to include meditation as soon as you put those five minutes in your day and when you make it in Attention to be mindful during the day. You change the way you look at things. So that's worth something. It's not worth nearly as much as doing, say, an hour a day. It should be a lot better. So try and, if you can, try and work up to an hour a day. I don't know if you've done the at-home meditation course that we offer, but you might consider trying that. It's good to have a teacher to help you with those courageous in intention inclinations. I find my mind perpetually reiterating by itself impermanence, suffering, non-self. Is this wrong? So the same answer as the person who asked, is this okay? Although in this case, you're, uh, I don't remember what the other case, but in this case, you're likely, the implication here is that you're likely encouraging this or feeling good about it or liking it or, or you know, thinking that it's a good thing and you shouldn't do that or you should note if you're doing that, liking it or so on. Because that's not the practice. If you're reiterating it, you can say, well, saying or, Think thinking, I guess, is what it is. If you hear those words in your head, you might say hearing, but it's most likely thinking. Just say thinking. There's no great benefit to that. There's a small benefit. You know, reminding yourself of that is a very basic sort of practice. Something that kids could use. If you have kids, you can teach them that chant. What I'm thinking of is they have these prayer beads. And uh, so someone was saying, when you flick up a prayer bead, you can say, Anichang dukang anatta. Anichang dukang anatta. One, two, three of the beads. It's not the practice, and it's not really that profound or, or useful. 
but it's a good basic reminder. I mean, it's a great thing to have that sense that that's the nature of reality, to align your views in that way in a mundane sense, but it's no replacement for actual mindfulness, and it's just a distraction or a crutch in the long term that's going to impede your your progress as you rely on it, no? That's the point. What role does quietness play in the meditation practice? Can it become a crutch? It can. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being in a quiet place, but seeking out a quiet place, liking the quiet place. I assume you're talking about external quietude. Because if you're talking about internal quietude, it's more like a good, good result when your mind starts to get more quiet. But you should still note it. Quiet, quiet. You should never get cling to it or anything like that. But the same goes with internal or external. Don't cling to anything. Nothing is worth clinging to. So things become a crutch when you start to rely on them, and you start to 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 gravitate around them where you're you're. It's unacceptable if they're not there. That kind of thing. There's nothing wrong with being in quiet all the time. Even you just have to cultivate the qualities of mind that allow you to be mindful irrespective of whether you're in quiet so in quiet you can you can develop all those those states but you have to develop them so that when there is loud noises it's all the same to you hearing hearing How does one properly note experiences that start and stop within a short amount of time? It seems like one's mindfulness either lapses in between the experiences or the mind becomes too agitated. Well, if you mean that that are incessantly arising and ceasing, you don't have to note each arising and ceasing. Just try and note in general what's happening. But just because something ceases, it doesn't... I mean, it's always going to technically be that way. You'll note something just after it ceased anyway, so it's not a re that's not a real problem. Just try and note it after it ceases. But if there's lots of them continuously, you don't have to note each and every one. Just note generally. Something like once per second is the advice, but you, you, know, you shouldn't have a metronome or anything. It's just that's a general guide for you to understand what we mean. Anything much quicker than that is just going to just agitate you, as you say. If you feel agitated, note that as well. My father is attempting to quit smoking and has been easily irritable. I feel stressed and upset when he lashes out. How can I help him and myself with these feelings that arise? I mean, the simplest way is to do some meditation. If you haven't read our booklet, read that. If you have, you might be interested in doing the at meditation course if you haven't done that. Once you've done that, I mean, you become a good example to him for whatever that's worth. I mean, it's often worth a lot to the people who you're close to. When people are irritable and you're not irritated back, that's a great change in your dynamic, right? That's going to change your world change the course of your relationship uh, and beyond that I would say I would say in conjunction with that once your relationship starts to change you might um, suggest to him that he try the meditation because it really can help you quit smoking What method of meditation do you recommend for a beginner? We have a booklet that teaches a beginner how to meditate. You can find it on our website. There should be a link in the description. And it's now on the screen, so have at, have at it. And if you're really interested in learning more about the technique, you can take our at-home meditation course, which is also on our website.
everything's free. We don't charge for stuff. So don't be, don't worry about that. There's no catch either. It always sounds like there must be something, right? When I first suggested, it's like, what's, what's the cost? And then when I say it's free, well, what's the catch? There isn't a catch. This is Buddhism. We're Buddhists. The catch is we're 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 doing it for ourselves. We're not doing. I'm, I'm doing it for me and not you. It's great for me to be so helpful. You know? It's great for Chris to be helpful. It's great for all the volunteers. It's a part of our religious practice. So we're like, uh, I mean, Sikhs are a lot like this. I think, in some ways, part of their religious practice to be helpful and so on. Well, and lots of I mean, Christians, Muslims, Jews. This, it's a thing religious people do. It's a it's one of the good things of religion. It's one of those things that that brings religions together because there's a lot of a lot of this in religion. Whatever all all the other bad stuff aside, one good thing is those people in religion who try to help others and help themselves, like really make themselves better people. I have severe PTSD from sexual trauma I experienced with two former partners. I think somehow things that happened to me are being encompassed. Is this possible? I don't understand the word encompassed in this context. Do you understand that, Chris? Without any more information, Bhante, I just assume it could be a question about Kama. I mean, it sounds like repressed or something like that. I mean, the question isn't all that... I don't know that the question is the important question. The question here, is this possible? Uh, I mean, it, it kind of hints at the fact that you might be barking up the wrong tree. Because, hear me out, mindfulness shows you what's real it, it it's something that we don't we, we aren't familiar with and it's hard to get get a grasp of the fact that meditation is actually going to give you knowledge we're actually taught in modern scientific parlance to believe that you can't actually know anything you can only know that something isn't true you can disprove things, but knowledge knowledge is only the built the, the 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 accumulation of evidence. But in meditation you come to know things. I mean it's very simple things. The reason why why we overlook it is because the things you can know are, are not very many. But you can know seeing. You can know that seeing is seeing. You can know that hearing is hearing. You can know that stress is stress. Trauma is trauma. You can know your memories are memories. You can know your emotions are emotions, your feelings are feelings. Those are the things you can know. And so when we look at what happens, what it happens is limited to those basic building blocks. So the things that happened to you and the things that are happening to you now are the building blocks, are these basic, simple realities. And mindfulness teaches you gives you a way, a method, a, a means of facing those experiences and understanding what's really going on, what's going on behind this label of PTSD, sexual trauma. Because, I mean, those are real, but they're only real in a conceptual sense. You can conceive of having been sexually traumatized. You can conceive of having PTSD. 
But you can't experience those things. What you're experiencing is more simple, more basic. It's not uh, not to try to trivialize it. That's not the point. It's that there's something more basic going on. Basic uh, building blocks that are not trivial. That can be very intense. But the intensity is only in the, the experiences. It's only in the moments. And you can face those, because they're not harmful. They are not dangerous. They are not the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is our incapacity. I mean, it's our improper interaction with those experiences based on our incapacity to, to face them, based on our misunderstanding of them and our misunderstanding of the nature of reality and the way the mind works and how to deal with things right, by trying to control them or avoid them or fix them, etc. All of that is wrong. Try to just see and face and understand. Read the booklet if you haven't, that might help. But I can't really, that didn't really answer the question. Hopefully it helped point you in a what I think might be a better direction. How can I break free from materialist or physicalist thought patterns and beliefs? Is this the same person as before? I think it's I'd... the same answer as before. Uh, it doesn't matter. I was just kind of joking. It doesn't really matter if it is. Uh, we don't try to break free from things, you see. Definitely recommend trying the meditation practice. Doesn't matter what kind of thought patterns they are, we don't try to break free from them. This is a your 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 question could be generalized and the answer would be the same. Because different people will ask this question in different ways. They'll say, How do I break free from PTSD? Thoughts relating to PTSD, right? Trauma that I experienced. How do I break free from my desire to eat lots of food? How do I break free from my destructive thoughts and negative thoughts and positive thoughts and how do I break free from my thoughts thinking too much that's not how this works try and see your thoughts as arising and ceasing and it's much more basic what happens what happens is not oh I should stop thinking in this way it's much more like oh my oh dear me I'm, I'm thinking far too much and just thinking is just incessant, and it's not nearly as useful or beneficial as I thought. It has nothing to do with the content of the thoughts. It's just the way I go about living my life is just all wrong. I think too much. In Thailand, it's a, I think I think the Thai people I think I think Thai people think don't think enough. In general, it's a it's a gross generalization, but I think there's often a. Uh, just following mindlessly sometimes that, that can be discouraging but on the other hand what 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 I found in Thailand that, that everyone noticed about people like me is that we think way too much and so it was a common thing that we'd hear Kit Mac you think you think a lot think too much Kit Mac goodbye so that doesn't matter. There's no judgment going on about whether you think too much or not enough. Just watch and look and you'll see. And you'll start to change. You'll start to probably think less. Especially, you know, if you it's not just a Thai Western thing or an Eastern Western thing. It's I I met a lot of people who were who were uneducated living I was living in rural area. But anyone who's, who's who's greatly educated thinks a lot, and that can be a real uh, hindrance towards seeing clearly, because it distracts you. It's not doesn't mean you should hate it or be upset by it. It means you should try to see more clearly. And as you watch and see the thoughts more clearly, you'll you'll start to incline towards thinking less. Most likely. 
hopefully some people will start to incline towards thinking a little more means considering whether what they're doing actually has meaning or whether it's just blind faith. Can you provide some examples of activities that promote a wholesome state of mind as opposed to activities that promote addiction? I'm unsure of what else to do outside of meditation practice. Well, if you're not a monk, then there's lots of things you could do. You could find an occupation that is helpful to other people. You could take up uh, activities like helping out at food banks, helping out at a monastery. You could join our volunteer group if you want. we got people who are volunteering and they're finding things to do. And what I said about our volunteer group, and I'm not, I'm not sure how well it was received, but I said it, we, we shouldn't look for things, projects for people, uh, or, or projects, and then, and then try to find people who... It's not like we shouldn't look for people to do our projects. Right. If we have a project and say, okay, now we have to find people to do this, it should be more, there are people who want to do things, we should give them suggestions. So we have these projects, like make we're making a book, and we got audio uh, podcasts now, and stuff like that. There's a group looking at building a monastery. We don't, we don't need to make projects, we need to uh, fulfill the, the needs, you know. And so if you if you can think of something good to do, just do it, you know. Find good things to do. If you live in a monastery as a monk or not as a monk, it's much easier. There's often routines, duties. Often it's a lot of meditation. But if you don't have anything to do, just do more meditation because ultimately that's the top of the pile. The top of the heap of, of wholesomeness is mindfulness. Sorry, you wanted examples. Let me I didn't I, I don't know that I gave you so I did give some, but I wanted to talk a little more like like just be for example, being charitable, giving to charity, working at a charity, um, being ethical. Uh, taking you know taking precepts keeping precepts keeping the eight precepts sometimes studying studying the, the buddha's teaching reading the buddha's teaching going to groups that study the buddha we have a study group on saturday morning if you want to join our group going online and engaging and asking of questions and answering questions there's a lot of a lot of activities that you can do there are some there's something called the ten kusala kamapata, which means the ten means of cultivating wholesomeness. And I'm sure I did a talk on it. I'm not gonna go into them here. You can probably Google them and if you can't find them, you can come on our Discord. We have a Discord server that I encourage everyone to consider joining. If you're if you're if you're sincere and interested, you can join our community and talk there I sometimes worry I will die before enlightenment and the effort will be for naught I know ultimately that's selfish and not what this is all about but do you have any words of wisdom in this regard I don't think it's selfish. I'm not so sure why you're using that word. I mean, I don't, I don't know what you're going through, but um, on face value, it doesn't seem selfish. It, it seems, uh, you know, it's, I mean, worry is always going to be delusion. So I could say it's delusional. That's, uh, that's not a good. No, in English, that doesn't mean what I mean it to mean. It's misguided because there's no benefit to worrying, right? And it's also misguided because it's, it won't be for naught. Effort is not forever for naught. It, it creates upanisaya at the very least. It's going to change the course of future lives. Any practice you do in this life will propel you further and closer to Buddhism in the future, to, to enlightenment in the future. 
So, so you can stop worrying for that reason. But um, on a deeper level, worry isn't something you should try to get rid of per se. It's something you should try to understand. So when you're worried, just say to yourself, worried, worried. But there's nothing wrong with wanting to become enlightened before you die. It can be distracting if you fixate on it, but it can also lead you to work harder. We shouldn't be all, we shouldn't be um, complacent and, and thinking, oh, it's okay, some lifetime I'll become enlightened. I'll just do a little bit of meditation. No, you should work as though your head was on fire. Because there's no guarantee that you're going to ever become enlightened. For, uh, for all that I just said, there's no guarantee until you see the truth, until you experience Nibbana for yourself. You never know what the future might bring, but it will not be for naught. I mean, it, mo it, 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 it increases your capacity and potential, your potential to eventually become enlightened. So focus, as always, focus more on the practice than on the expectations of what might come in the future. When you're worried like that, just say worried. But do consider to do meditation courses and especially intensive courses where you can really, really work on yourself. So I think we're done. You can point me to any, uh, you know, any of the you know what questions, the important questions. If there are none of those left, I'll just end it. I have uh, one more in this tier. Go for it. Would one eventually stop using mantras to completely experience a selfless or ego-detached state? I mean, the answer basically is no. But you're using words that I would just probably use in a different... I would put this sentence together a little differently as all. Well. Um, the answer is generally no, and probably what you, I mean, may not even agree with, but at the very least don't understand the way I think I understand, that the mantras are actually conducive towards cultivating selflessness and what you call ego-detached state, because the mantras fix the mind or focus the mind on the experience itself, so the mind states that come as a result are objective and impersonal that they, they don't make reference to the soul or the self or ego so that's their very goal and purpose but but that being said and why i kind of hedged or hesitated a little bit on it is because you do eventually stop using mantras and that's when you're experiencing nibbana when you when you experience the state that is detached from not just ego but detached from everything during that state there is no mantra that's when you stop all right thank you all great session another great great moment in our history together sadhu you can all talk again say what you like sadhu. in chat as long as it's kind and thoughtful and well well intentioned. Sadhu. It is good. Next session is scheduled for Saturday at 3 p.m., 3 p.m. Eastern Time. We always go by wherever I am in the world. I'm not sure if we could do it any other way. Well, yeah, it's just easiest for me. Eastern Time.
maybe see some of you there. Have a good day, everyone. Have a good night.